1: And twenty eight, Friday, February eleventh, twenty twenty two. And hello to all our friends and listeners. Don't forget to drop us a line, vetgurus at gmail.com. And an a special thanks, Mark, to our patrons. If you go to our website and then click on Help Us or Throw Us a Bone, um, those people who give us a dollar or two or more per month to help support and pay for our production
0: costs. How are you, Mark? I'm great Brendan I'm really really well everything is the weather's been bizarre I think we've imported some of your Melbourne weather Melbourne is famous for the four seasons in one day thing and um crackies we've been having rolling storms and then glorious sunshine and rainbows in between and Makes me feel like I'm in Melbourne, Brendan. It does sound very Melbourne-like, although in Melbourne
1: lately we've had some quite hot and humid weather, Mark, and it's warmed up again now, but it's actually a nice mid to late 20 degree or so today, Celsius, not Fahrenheit for our overseas listeners, not that chilly. Um, (laughs) And all is good here, Mark, all is good, Um, Plugging away at work as usual, some very interesting cases, not just the exotics, but the dogs and cats as well Um, and as usual which tends to happen as you progress through life you end up euthanizing a few pets that you've watched grow up from puppyhood or kittenhood Um, and it's a bit of a bittersweet moment isn't it you feel proud I think um, or I do that you've managed to nurse this animal through its last days and but you also feel proud that you've managed to keep them as a client and keep that animal as a patient. And, uh, you, you often see the, the client and their, their kids grow up as well, don't you, Mark? Um, and, and you end up, uh, having a, having a good relationship with them as well. So, uh,
0: yeah. It's and definitely have... one of the, definitely one of the, positives of a profession in uh, of of the profession in in general practice is that you become connected to families and and you know when you get to a ripe old age like me you have stories of um of you know looking after the grandparents pets then the parents and now the the um the the Children are just getting to that age where they're having pets of their own. So cycle yes. of life, Brendan, cycle That's of life. That's right. And it gets a little bit depressing when you have, <laughs> you have
1: the vet student um, coming through or the graduate vet coming through and you finally tweak that, hey, they came through as a you know, little toddler, <laughs> to your clinic many years ago and here they are as a graduated veterinarian. So. I saw a
0: wonderful T-shirt that I think I'm going to um, invest in. It says, um, it's rather uncomfortable, uh, I feel uncomfortable being the same age as all these old people. Mm. That's a truism, Mark, definitely <laughs>
1: for me. <laughs> uh, okay, enough talking about old people talk, Mark. Um, I don't think we have a review this week, um, so it's going to be short and sharp because we have a very interesting interview this week as our, as our main topic, which we'll have more about shortly. So I think you want to jump into a, a very interesting animal. I'm, I'm, I'll be very
0: interested in your thoughts, your summary of this particular news story, Mark. Well, it is interesting. Um, it's the story of the kunga, um, and um, the kunga is a well recognised uh, equine uh, equid um, that appears in um, in many on on much ancient um, uh, artwork, a um, uh, beast of burden, particularly involved in um, uh, warfare in um, in. Um, Syria and Mesopotamia, um, and re- very recently there was an excavation which found, um, uh, you know, the bodies of a series. I think there were four of these um, uh, animals buried, and this provided an opportunity, first of all, to age them, 4,500 years old, but also to do some genetic analysis, which suggests these um, uh, donkey-like animals were um Quite possibly the first hybrid that was, um, arranged, engineered, um, by humans. The genetic analysis suggests that, um, that the animals were a hybrid between, between donkeys and Hemipe, um, which is a, a type of ancient Asiatic wild ass. Um, and, um, and horses didn't, uh, didn't show up in this part of the world, um, maybe until, um, 500 years later, um, uh, they were originally domesticated likely in in uh, Russia and probably didn't reach this part of the world um, for quite a long time. And so these animals would have been um, unique and very precious and very special And um, and so understanding a little bit about how they came to be. And I'm fascinated by... The control by even at this stage, the, I don't, I'm sort of trying to imagine how people, um, would, you know, the yards they kept them in, the arrangements they made to, um, keep, uh, herds of them together. And, and, um, and there is some speculation that that, whatever happened that allowed the hybrids to develop, um, that they had characteristics that made them, uh, more, tractable in that um, you know in in the situation where there was a battle and a war um, that something about the hybrid was better than either parent breed when it came to um, to going to war so it's fascinating that humans have been dabbling in the genetic makeup of uh, companion animals or work animals um, and that uh, the history of that dabbling goes back four and a half thousand years Brendan
1: yes and there's some very Interest in little pictures there, isn't there? There's a um, some skeletons there, some, um, and also that mosaic. Um, I if you can see that mosaic yeah, there, yeah. which we'll have a link to, um, with one of those animals pulling the the little chariot there. And um, I think it's a bit sad that you know this is one of the very early. Um, very early hybrids that, that, that is, according to one of the researchers, yeah, they regarded it as a bioengineering war, bioengineered war machine. Um, so I think it's a little bit sad that, um, you know, but, um, if they were just. Um, breeding them to be used in battle there um, in that mosaic there mark um there, there's somebody lying beneath one of those yes. um, it looks a little bit like gollum well yeah that's gollum um, well. <laughs> yeah, no, it's gollum. um yeah. so yeah um fascinating story though mark and um there's some None of them around anymore, did they? They didn't go into the detail why um, the, the comment there that it's impossible to make these animals again, Mark. What was a? Do you do you have any um, thoughts on what the
0: why that was um, stated? Yes, because the uh, hemipay ah, the yes, the no 16th, yes It's been yes. extinct since. Oh not. well, apart from that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes sorry, I, I, I just skimmed I, that article. I, I <laughs> <laughs> the um the uh, I've, I sort of have a bit of a Jurassic Park, you know. They've collected paper yes. analysis. Are they going to plug it into the uterus of a, a you know, modern equid? And anyway, and we have a
1: bioengineered war machine again. Yes. Well, my news story mark is just a follow-up on one we had last week or the week before. And for those of you who haven't listened to the previous couple of weeks, stop now and go back and then come <laughs> yeah. back at this point at time, eight minutes, 50 seconds or so, Uh, and it's about the hamster pet stores in Hong Kong um, where they were culling a few thousand hamsters recently after a COVID outbreak was traced back to a particular little um, boss pet store, it was called, were 11 ham- hamsters tested positive. Well, the good news is after collecting well over a 1,000 samples, uh, all of them were negative. Authorities are saying that most of the stores will begin trading again this week, Mark. You'll be happy to know. And all the concerned pet shops have been deep cleaned and they've compensated pet stores with, which were forced to close with a, with a cash, one-off cash payment there mark so you know were they going a little bit overboard um perhaps uh, with the mass coal that they have there um because oh, you, they, are, you, are you thinking they were bonkers in honkers yeah, yes that's right um they've went gone but nobody well i won't <laughs> go down that track about um hong kong politics with hong kong mark um, i'll leave that alone um yeah, so that's a potentially good story, I suppose. Um, I the think it's a It, it, yeah, also it, it,
0: it yeah. is a good story and it, and you know when we spoke about that last time we were saying that uh, authorities are going to make um little errors in judgment and have to be allowed to and and particularly this is a good one because they've taken the time to try and correct things um open up the, when it's not seen to be a risk, they've opened up the pet stores and made some payments to the ones who were financially um, impeded. So it is a good story, Brandon.
1: I'm glad you could put a
0: good spin on it, Mark,
1: as <coughs> usual. Um, well done. So well, we're ripping through it today. Um, we're going to cross now to a, a recording which I'll cut into this um, podcast seamlessly seamlessly in a second um, with an interview we haven't done an interview for a while so um, I'm really looking forward to this one so I will cut to myself (laughs) which will come over us in a minute and we'll catch you at the end of the interview so here we are with a very special interview this week a very good friend of Mark and I's and many other people as well and it's a world-renowned Exotics veterinarian, reptile veterinarian, wildlife veterinarian, Doctor Robert Johnson.
2: Welcome, Robert. Good day, Brendan. Hello, Mark.
0: Hey, Robert. Good to do your voice.
2: Yeah, likewise. You're sounding a bit faint, Mark. Are you sort of in the wilderness?
0: No, I wish I was. <laughs> I'm, I'm I think I'm, it's uh, you've been you've been Um, exposed to our technical mastery um, just before we started recording. And and sometimes I think um, that that mastery extends to my inability to get the volume right on my microphone. And it's taken us 228
1: episodes, Robert, to get get it all down pat like we have today. So welcome to our little podcast, Mark. Uh, Robert, And my first question to you, Robert, is, who are, are you? What do you do? Where do you come from and where are you going? <laughs> so oh, right. let, let's take that one step at a time. Um, you're obviously a veterinarian and a very good friend of ours. And when did you think you would be a vet? Did you Are you one of these people who wanted to be a vet from, you know, a little kid from several years of age, or did you just wander into veterinary science?
2: No, I never wandered in. um I had my trajectory planned from a very early age and I knew I had to work hard at school and I didn't have a default uh, plan, I didn't have a plan B um, so I can still remember how overjoyed I was when I picked up that Sydney Morning Herald from the front lawn in my gym jams and, oh God, I didn't have my glasses on, I couldn't read the numbers and I finally uh, went inside and there it was, yeah, I got into vet um yeah so now you studied vet at sydney university
1: and similar to almost our vintage here as, as mark and myself um robert was it a five-year course when you went through
2: it was a five-year course brendan um it was quite quite intensive like nine to five um you know, five days a week and we always envied the art students who had about 10 hours a week and uh, you know we'd come in on the late train and go home early afternoon um, yeah so uh, yeah, yeah it was pretty intense and holidays were taken up with animal husbandry pracs and farm place. work and placements yeah. and all those sorts of things i think it's pretty similar to what what I had and Mark had
1: as well yeah yes. I think during most of my course I think we had one afternoon off a week I think it was Wednesday afternoon and otherwise we were was lectures and or pracs
2: from virtually 9am to 5pm yes the yeah, kids well, of today they just don't realise well your afternoon off you would have been shooting straight up to the library I know you <laughs>
1: <laughs> actually I was often playing a bit of sport playing basketball or, or, or footy for the um one of the university teams i used to do that or a bit of bit of cross-country mountaineering or or other activities but it's not about me it's about you here robert <laughs> yeah. so so what subjects did you enjoy at uni and you mentioned that you wanted to be a vet by the sound of it from a very young age did you want to get into wildlife and exotics and reptiles um, um and we know the partial answer to this one, did you have many of these animals as pets when you were young?
2: Yeah, well, I, I had birds and lizards and rabbits and dogs and cats as pets when I was young and we had horses over our back fence. And it, funnily enough, my motor mechanic brother was a, quite a good polo cross player and my my younger brother, Peter, he joined the pony club so he could meet girls. And then the, the bloke who went on to be a vet um, really didn't have as much to do with horses as his two... Um, non veterinary uh, brothers did, uh, but uh, yeah. That, that was sort of uh, uh, my upbringing in the wild west of Sydney. And uh, uh, did was- you have a did you have a thought during the
1: vet course? I do want to try and have a, a special interest or a specialisation in wildlife or do zoo work from early on there, or did it just sort of slowly?
2: weave its not, way
1: into your mind?
2: Not really. I just wanted to get out and fix up as many critters as I could of so many different species and I was lucky enough, I think I was one of the first people in my year to have a job lined up halfway through final year and this practice that I ended up spending five years in and um, I, saw, I saw practice there as a student and they just had a really... Great sort of caseload of all sorts of animals, including uh, native animals and koalas, and a lot of horse work, cattle work. So, um, really really wide variety of work, and it was a big practice, six vets. So, you got a lot of experience there. So, I I just wanted to get out and work in that practice and be a veterinary.
0: Yes. What what, do you think from that time, Robert, what do you think um, is different? then, when you first got out and were a recent graduate, to what the recent graduates have to do now? Do you think, can you identify any differences? Uh, Lots of differences, Mark. You sort of
2: hit the ground running, um, I guess, when when I graduated. There were no specialists, so um, you had a crack at everything. Uh, You very quickly were expected to get up to speed with surgery, Um, and I was lucky that I had a couple of really great mentors um, in in my uh, first couple of years, and um, yeah, and you were you expected to be well in in our practice, pretty experienced across um, a wide range of species. But you had lots of support; that was the main thing. And uh, a great leader. He would never have thought that he was a leader. He he just led by example. And um, yeah, it was it was a great team ethic. I thought. Um, so that was the situation that I found myself in you're robert you're
1: mainly known as two things to me well three things one a great friend secondly a wildlife veterinarian but also uh probably internationally more more so as a reptile veterinarian so i'm trying to steer you towards how, how because we have listeners who are interested in Exotics, obviously, because of our podcast and, and getting into exotic vet practice and, and eventually potentially specialisation if it's available in their country. Um, what's your recommendations for vets who have that passion or interest, how they get down that
2: path? Well, they should um, join any special interest group that their local veterinary association has, go to conferences, read read widely Uh, Join ARAV, the Association of Reptilian and Amphibian vets, and go to their conferences once once you're able to, and meet uh, like-minded people. But also in your own area, uh, just if you have the chance to treat a a reptile, get known for it. And these days, you could probably post it on social media that um, hey, you fixed up this bearded dragon, and you really enjoyed it, and it's a success. You know, whatever you did, Um, so. Word gets around pretty quickly. Word of mouth, I think, is is the best thing. And also, if you have a local reptile association, you might start to see people from that association or society and they might have a monthly meeting and go along there and talk at that meeting. Even if you don't know a lot, just turn up just to tell them that um, you're there and uh, you have a a real passion for reptiles. Uh, There's no secret to how you do that, uh, and it's all about people, Brendan and Mark. We we know that. Veterinary practice is all about people, so, yes. and, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with a bit of self-promotion, and who better to do the self-promotion than yourself, I say. Hear, hear. Um,
1: one of the things I always envied about you, Robert, you managed to score... Well, it's a fairly long-term position part-time for a lot of it, um, working at one of the famous zoos here in Australia, Taronga Zoo. Um, And again, that's an even smaller niche, I suppose, um, subset of the exotic vet um, industry. And I've I've been fortunate to work in a zoo here in Victoria as well. Um, Can you talk us through some of the well, some of the interesting cases you've had there, but how how did you manage to get into Toronga, Mark uh, Robert, um, and how could you not just sit there and look at that amazing view from Taronga so um, to the to the water there all day and not do any work?
2: Yeah, well, um, there's a real trick to that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't go into that. But uh, I I just I think I might have fallen on my feet a bit because i had been out of Graduated for twenty nine years, and, and Jane and I decided that uh, my veterinary veterinarian wife and I decided that we um, needed a bit of a tree, or uh, well not a tree change, a, a change because uh, the practice that we had was growing. It was big, and we had four or five vets and stuff I don't know about ten people, and we seemed to be managing people rather than fixing up animals. So. We sold that practice and then bought a very small practice closer to Sydney in the western suburbs of Sydney. And uh, yeah, and then I thought, well, I should really do a bit more study. What can I do? And I thought, well, should I study for my memberships uh, in zoo and wildlife because that was the only thing available. We didn't have uh, medicine surgery of unusual pets in the college then. I thought, no, I'd rather be challenged by people outside my comfort zone. So I found out about this certificate in zoo medicine through the Royal College in London, and I, I think I was the first um, non-resident to do it. And it was a quite extensive, rigorous process. And you had to, you know, prove that you worked in a busy practice, you had sufficient caseload, and then you had a case log, and then you sat exams, written and prac. Uh, and oral, so that was really great and I managed to do all that and you wouldn't believe six months later a job came up at Taronga two days a week and then I asked Jane if I could do it because uh, I already had one rostered day off and maybe one one other day wouldn't be too bad so I could work on my days off at our clinic and I rocked up for the interview and the interview was almost like uh, the oral exam I'd sat six months before in London and I did all right, and they gave me the job. So that's that's how it all panned out. So um, you could call it luck, but you can also call it being prepared. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just had all my ducks in a row, I guess, and it happened. And I worked there for seven years and absolutely loved it. Um, and I, the, the best part I always thought was outside rounds where you'd just uh, – after your vet meeting in the morning with the other vets and the pathologists um, and the nurses, you would then head out and um, walk around to different parts of the zoo. It's like um, doing house calls on foot. And then you'd be walking down the hill and you'd have the giraffes on your right and the Sydney Opera House and the Harbour Bridge in the background and um, saying hello to all your friends at the zoo as you're walking around. And oh, I just thought that was wonderful. <laughs> I would have done it for nothing or I would have paid to do it, but I got paid to do it. So that was,
0: that's terrific. And, Robert, if I understand correctly, the the work at the zoo also afforded you the opportunity to travel to Fiji and entertain one of the, your other great interests, the, the uh, conservation of the endangered um, Fijian iguana. Yes,
2: Mark. Um, I... Uh, I Favorite part of the zoo um, for me, and it doesn't come as much of a surprise. It's the reptile house. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember from being a small boy, always being enamored with the, the reptiles that were on display at Taronga Zoo, and uh, I got to um, do a fair bit of work uh, with the reptile people. I, I did a, a survey on eastern water dragons, which are the, our largest dragon species in Australia. In Telagama, lasurii, and uh, they're in great abundance around the zoo. So I did some, I guess, work on baseline uh, hematology and biochem, and I I published that those results. And uh, then that was a bit of a baseline for me to, you know, go to uh, Fiji with Pete, Dr. Peter Harlow, the head of the reptile division, and we went right to the to the west of Fiji in a little place called Yandua and next to it was Yandua Tumba, which was um, managed by the National Trust and it had the biggest population of critically endangered um, Fijian-crested iguanas there and um, these are amazing animals they... They don't breed every year. They only lay, f- lay a few eggs at a time. They live virtually in the same tree for their whole life, and we know this because the trees are labelled and the, the lizards are microchipped and there are thousands of them there, and it's it's just absolute wonder and a privilege to have gone there uh, two times. And one of the things that I really loved was getting to know people in the village of uh, Yandua, on Yandua, and uh, it was just a privilege to be with them and to actually understand that the simpler the life, the better, and how complicated and how busy my life was in comparison, but how happy the people who lived there were. And So this was just a spin-off from actually my interest in uh, Fijian Crested iguanas and conservation. And I'm, I'm still in touch with the people there, and um, they adhere to my heart.
0: It's and no surprise. So is the CG in crested iguana <laughs> It's no surprise to me that um in in so many of the endeavors in your life it um you said it before it's uh um, the veterinary game is uh, about animal health and the people um and those two things there are uh, twin themes in almost everything you do Robert
2: yeah um I, I always tell students too that veterinary practice is a people business Hmm. Now,
1: Robert, you've well-published, including a, a very a classic textbook on care of um, reptiles, um, which you were kind enough to co-author with yours truly, myself.
2: <laughs> um, oh, that, was, but, that was an excellent one, Brendan. <laughs> yeah.
1: But... I want you to tell a little bit of a story about, um, you're, you're fortunate enough to have a, have a chapter published in the, the book that's probably regarded as the gold standard for reptile medicine, the MADA, um, book. And you are author or co author of the venomous reptile section. Now, I find that Quite curious, Robert. Considering what happened to you at one stage with a venomous reptile, can you let our listeners know about this particular story?
2: Well, um, it happened one Monday afternoon, last consult of the day, and I needed to quickly check an eastern brown snake. And for those of um, those listeners that maybe don't know or aren't uh, uh, inhabitants of Australia, it's listed as probably the second most venomous snake in the world and i as my young son edward said i broached my own protocol and or breached i've forgotten whether it's broach or breach but anyhow i i didn't ask for the snake to be tubed um safely i just thought oh well, we'll just have a quick look and it whipped around and got me on the arm and it was only a very just a glancing blow and they only have small teeth and i looked down and there was blood and I said, I've been bitten. So I I ended up in hospital for three days and had the the trifecta venom-induced consumptive coagulopathy. I think, uh, what what was it, uh, uh, thrombotic microangiopathy and some renal issues But I've got over all that. And uh, in the meantime, recovering from that, I'm writing a chapter for the said book, Maida, um, on venomous snake procedures and for those of you who have it in chapter 22 if you open it up you'll see a picture of my arm there and it. Just, I think it just says uh, bite from an um, eastern brown snake uh, you know on the arm of a veterinarian it doesn't say who the veterinarian is but um, now a full disclosure it is I so uh, suitably chastened and um uh, you know it's probably the first time that such a chapter has been written by someone who actually has succumbed during the writing of that chapter to the actual subject
0: I'm, i've writing. just got to say that's uncommon commitment to to gain the experience to write authoritatively about the chapter you went above and beyond there robert you just well, needed yeah. to fill in
1: one more picture did you in that chapter you had one lacking
2: yeah yeah well i think can you give us some can you give us another image but but Mark, you know, my criticism is that um, everyone goes on about, you know, the, the land down under and the land of reptiles and everything. But we know that the um, uh, probably in, it's getting better now, but the reptile sort of literature has been very skewed towards uh, Europe of all places and and Amer- the Americas. And uh, I. When I was invited to write this chapter, I thought, you beauty, I'm going to talk about Australian snakes <laughs> um, because we, as you know, we, we have most of our venomous snakes are elapids and we don't have any crotalids, the rap was. Um, so we, we have different snakes here and, uh, it, 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 uh, you know, it should be written about. But, yeah. I sort of added a little bit of colour to that chapter, <laughs> bit of flavour. Now, Robert,
1: I'm curious, and I think I've asked you this before, but I've probably forgotten. What does it? What did it feel like after you've been bitten? Those few days when you're in hospital, what's? It, do you just feel like you've, you just feel crap? Do you feel like you've got the flu? Is it just feel miserable? What all three? What? Yeah. What's the feel in?
2: Well. I was I was hospitalised and I didn't realise that I was actually in the resuscitation unit um, until I uh, opened the drawer of the, the trolley next to me and there was a laryngoscope and some and I thought, whoa, this is serious. Uh, and I had a little bit of a headache, nothing much else, and they were tossing up whether to give me antivenom or not. And in the end, they decided not to because my blood clotting wasn't too bad. But the, by the next day, um, you know, my my bloods weren't looking as good and I heard the doctor say, oh, geez, maybe we should have given him some antivenom and I (laughs) called out, oh, that would have been a good idea. Um, But anyhow, they did their best because they're in consultation with a toxinologist, so a toxinologist, not a toxicologist. Um, And uh, so I was supported with fluids and cardiac monitoring and all those sort of things and the cardiology team would visit every day and the renal team and... The one thing that I was worried about, Brendan, was would I have to have, um, you know, renal dialysis or anything yes. like that or, you know, a kidney transplant later on. That really, that was sort of just in the back of my mind. But as for being mm-hmm. sick, no, no, I wasn't, I wasn't, wasn't that sick except for a headache on the, the first night mm-hmm. and a bit of Panadol fixed that and I felt a bit hungry and I had a sandwich and fixed that too, so, um. Yes. Well,
1: yes, that is certainly a story, Robert. Um,
2: I was—I was the the only uh, president of the Australian Veterinary Association ever to be bitten um, during their term by a venomous snake. I would just sort of throw that in.
0: Well, and I that's think so. a very neat segue into the question about, <laughs> yes. um, uh, the, 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 um, our professional association, the AVA, um, uh, as, uh, as is common, I suppose, um, we all look for ways that we can um, give back to the profession, contribute to the profession that's given us so much, and and you did so in no small way by um, by leading the organisation uh, for a term, um, and um, and so tell us a little bit about that whole process. You 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 are a people person, but the politics would have been hard, Robert.
2: Yes, Mark. Um it was a case of I was, I was asked to um, assume the role of um, president uh, by the members of the board and uh, I I had never gone through life aspiring to, to do that. Even when I got on the board, it was just a suggestion from other people, you should get on the board, Robert, we could use your experience. And all of a sudden it happened and I can remember being quite... Um, not upset or distressed, but quite um, bamboozled by the whole thing on on the night and uh, ringing my wife and, uh, to be honest, I was in in tears. Were they of joy? Um, uh, Were they tears of relief? Were they tears of anxiety or uh, God knows what? But um, I settled quickly into the role because I had a great team of people around me and I absolutely adored them and... uh, you know, particularly some of the management staff who supported me, and uh, I, I will ever uh, be be in there. Well, you know, uh, debt uh, for, for what they did for me because we had some big issues to confront and greyhound racing and live cattle export and uh, the associations or the professions association with big farmer and pet food companies and just every few weeks an
0: issue came up and um... now i've got to quickly stop you there because you've reminded me of a a story that sort of encapsulates for me some of the the ways that you dealt with the presidency um that issue of the the greyhounds you you we are a, a a a a bunch of uh, veterinar- veterinarians are a, a bunch of people with, with different professional views and you know it's a conglomerate of different opinions um and you did have to attend a meeting of um greyhound veterinarians and there was a little bit of acrimony towards the the um management of the ava at that time by those veterinarians and you jumped into the lines. Then tell me what happened robert
2: Well, the the sacrificial lamb stood on a podium um, down at this conference and there were uh, all the uh, delegates from the conference were sitting in front of me and, uh, well, you know how you read body language, Mark, and they were sitting there with their um, arms folded and a constant stare at the podium and, uh, you know, probably the figurative throwing of rotten eggs and tomatoes for maybe an hour and my sort of being the sacrificial lamb and getting up there and um giving the ABA's point of view and what we have to remember too is that we supported the New South Wales government and then uh, due to political pressure they reversed their decision to close uh, or to shut down the greyhound industry and we were left high and dry but um, I still uh, thought that I should go down there with uh, a couple of other people and uh, and let them vent and it was interesting at, at the end we all agreed then we would go to the bar and have a drink and just a chat um, and then this fellow came up to me and he said oh I just want to have some uh, you know another word with you and I said mate didn't you hear we're all going to the bar and he said I don't drink and I said I bloody do, and I need a drink. If you want to talk to me, follow me. <laughs> I, and I've forgotten who that fellow is, but I, I was just, oh, God, I was stressed. and I, That's what I said at the start too. I thought, how am, how am I going to break the ice here? And I just stood in front of them and I said, well, it's good to be among friends. <laughs> oh you know what do you, what do you say but uh, it's funny re- recently um uh i i, I got a, a nice message from the actually president of he was president of the greyhound group at the time just to wish me all the best um on um, yeah something that i had achieved so it was really nice to to get a, a message from ray ferguson
0: and it's, it's um, I was just going to say it 's characteristic of um of your leadership that you didn 't just um uh, let that pass that you showed up in person and and gave them yeah. the the um, respect of an opportunity, and you talk about uh, being a sacrificial lamb. But um, your actions drew the profession closer together. And um, whether it was at the podium or in having a, a quiet beer afterwards, I'm sure that um, you opened their mind to other points of view, Robert. So it's it, it's um, a mark of your time in the presidency. Absolutely. Thank you. Ed. Sorry, Mark. (laughs) Mark, Mark's just too kind.
1: (laughs) Robert, there's another group that you're heavily involved in, especially recently, that I'd like you to just briefly outline um, for our listeners who don't know about them. That's Vets Beyond Borders and, and what they do. Do you want to have a little chat
2: about them? Yeah, Vets Beyond Borders is an amazing organisation, Chaps. Um, I, I joined in 2017 and I've been chair of the organisation for one year, taking over from Ian Douglas, who is one of the pioneers of the organisation. And we do work in Australia um, and we, we haven't done a lot of work in Australia until... Um, Those nasty bushfires of 2019, 2020, when we we mobilised a lot of vets and um, veterinary staff to um, provide care for all those poor animals, both wild and domestic, that were injured or had actually died during the fires. Um, so that's our AVERT program, but we have other programs um, internationally and, and we, we also um, go to places like the north of India in Sikkim where uh, we've joined the Sikkimese government in, um, I guess, mobilising an attack on dog born rabies and uh, the way we do this is to have um, massive desexing programs and also vaccination programs. And we've, I think, vaccinated well over 140,000, 150,000 dogs in Sikkim. And we have other programs uh, elsewhere around the world, um, other parts of India. And uh, we want to branch out into the South Pacific as well now. And we we have a couple of um, ways of doing this. We, we have like a vet match program where uh, a vet and a vet nurse will, will go and um, hook up to an already established organisation. Um, so there might be one in Samoa and we'll send staff there. And we we actually we don't supply any, um, well, massive equipment or anything like that. We, we supply people and that's what we do. And we have another um, arm of our organisation called Vet Train and uh, this involves people. Um, uh, you know accredited specialists within our country traveling to other parts of the world and training people that perhaps didn't have the benefit of really first-class veterinary training and um, so it's uh, it's wonderful to be on this board Uh, we have some very talented people Um, we have professors of veterinary medicine we have uh, previous um, chief veterinary officers of Victoria we have senior research scientists from Arles and uh, yeah and our non-vets too on the board are amazing people that bring wonderful knowledge uh, particularly on governance and uh, I guess strategic thinking so it I'm really excited still to be a member of Vets Beyond Borders and it's an organisation that has grown considerably over the even the last few years and uh, I think that's due to probably um, uh, the really good management uh, that we have now, uh, particularly due to Sally Colgan, Doctor Sally Colgan. Sally Colgan is a specialist equine surgeon that is our CEO and um, and our other staff as well. So yeah, I'm very happy to be um, involved with with VBB. Yeah, it's
1: pretty amazing the breadth of organisations and input you put into the veterinary profession, Robert, and I think Mark wants to mention a, just to our listeners a recent um, award that you've been bestowed upon you. Um, do you want to chat about that, Mark?
0: Well, definitely. I want to chat about it. I think it's one of the most exciting things, um, um, that I can think of. It's one of those things in life where, um, you know, someone who behind the scenes continually does constructive and positive things that builds people up around them that leads our profession. Um, and, um, and it's just so appropriate, um, that at some point in their career, um, they get, uh, you know, the chance to um, have that recognised. And, and there can be no um, better way for that to be recognised than, um, than by an Australia Day Award, um, an admission to the Order of Australia. Um, uh, you must be um, very, very proud and, uh, um, and we are all on your behalf very proud, but um, such an appropriate award, Robert.
2: Oh, thank you, Mark.
0: Yeah, to
2: I guess to be appointed a member of the Order of Australia is something I, I never aspired to, but it, it's something that I was I've always been aware of because every 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 year I'd look in the list to see who's being honoured, and um, I remember the the last person to be so honoured that I I knew was Helen Scott Orr, who was previous um, Chief Veterinary Officer of New South Wales, and she's actually a close neighbour now and. Um, and people like Schultz, Schultzy, Dave Schultz down in South Australia and people like that and, and Professor Max Zuber at the University of Sydney. And uh, I was always really, really happy for these people because I thought they'd contributed greatly. So when it happened to me, I just thought, oh, um, you know, the old cliches come out, I'm honoured, I'm, I'm humbled and I guess I'm flabbergasted. Uh, that might be more accurate. And so uh, you know the one of the best things about it is the lovely messages and calls that I get from people just saying it's it's like being at your own funeral, maybe in your own wake.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well hopefully you will be at your own funeral, Robin.
2: Or you won't oh yeah, I will be yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> My own wake, I should have said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's certainly
1: well deserved, Robert, and we're we're very we're proud of you, and we're we're going to own you. Um, oh no! <laughs> it's
0: so you're part of it, a
2: group. And... You know, you guys, it's 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 your award too, because it, it, I wouldn't have got there, you know, if it hadn't been for the people around me, and that's you two guys are important players. You know that
0: uh robert i think um uh, in it's been my life experience that the people that um that make things happen and and uh um and change the world are often generous in their um sharing of the of the um the glory and and i'm here to bask in that reflected glory of course but um but there's no doubt that um that that award is is entirely and appropriately uh, given to you because you earned it you've done those things yep yeah, I, I one of the things I love about your company is I always um, uh, learn new words and um, and one of my favorite uh, new words uh, that I learned in your company is um, um, polymath um, uh, not um, not a not a word that um, um, I I sort of pride myself on having a decent vocabulary and it wasn't a word that I was immediately familiar with, but um, if ever there was a person that um, that I felt uh, exemplified the meaning of that word who who had an interest across a vast array of areas of human endeavour um, and a leader in so many of them, you exemplify that. So you deserve that award and, and, and uh, yeah, I'm just so proud to be able to call you a friend.
2: Thank you, Mark. That's very kind. Ditto,
1: ditto. Um, Now, Robert, let's get back to more important business. Um, What's your most favourite reptile? And I'll make it easier for you. Tell me your most most favourite snake species, lizard species, and other species, crocodilian.
2: Righty, yeah, my favourite snake species would be a dead heat between the diamond python and the red-bellied black snake. So one is non-venomous, the other one is venomous. Um, The black snake is just a beautiful animal. Um, As far as lizards go, uh, another dead heat between the the eastern blue-tongue skink and the eastern water dragon. Uh, Yeah, I just love them both. So all Australian species. And my favourite turtle, you won't be surprised, it's a common eastern long neck turtle that we see commonly all around eastern Australia, and they are such a delight. Um, I love finding them on the side of the road and s- steering them in the right direction so they don't get run over or bringing them home to my dam and letting them go in the dam. And Yeah, they're just wonderful animals. And crocodilians, well, you can't go past... Um, you know our estuarine crocodile, crocodilus porosus, um, yes. commonly called the salty. Yes. And speaking of
1: salty, um, how did you cope with the politics um, when you were president of the AVA? And I'm not not just I'm not talking about politics within any organisation, but dealing with external people and, and organisations. Um, it's it's something that I. Both to test and um, and but admire people who who manage to step up to the plate and deal with that. It, it's uh, I don't think it would be in me to be able to cope with the barrage you would get from all these different interest groups.
2: Um, what's your advice for people who end up in that situation? Yeah, well, I, I guess yes you surround yourself with positive people and you go to lots of meetings and things and you sort of think, oh, I like that guy, even though he belongs to that organisation or something like that. But you meet some amazing people and you, and you take advice too. Um, like it's quite, for example, it's quite daunting to go to the National Farmers Federation Congress because there's a lot of alpha males around um, and, uh, you know, they're strutting their stuff and um, they're quite successful in, on their own patch and everything. Uh, but I was, I've been, always been mightily impressed by Tony Ma, who's the CEO of um, National Farmers Federation. He's a, he's a good person who cares cares about um, the people he looks after and that's all the different, um, you know, farmers organisations that uh, comprise NFF. And he likes bets and... Uh, I got on with him him very well. Um, it, within um, even our profession, you always get people who um, don't want to belong to the AVA um, and, you know, they sort of come out of their way at conferences to tell you that they don't like the AVA and... Um, I can remember meeting one guy and uh, he, he said, oh, I'd never joined the AVA. And uh, I, I said, why? And he said, oh, you don't want to know. And then we of chatting a little bit further on and I said, come on, tell me why you don't want to join the AVA. And he said, oh, you don't want to know. And I said, you know what, you're right. I'm going for a cup of tea and a cake. I'll see you later. And I I, I guess I left him just high and dry, but I thought, well, I've tried and um, I really, it's not going to uh, help him or me if we stand around chatting any longer. So, so I'm out of here. Um, yeah. yes. So I, I guess uh, are there a couple of examples of people that have impressed me and haven't impressed me? Does that help? <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Ah, very good answer though very good answer
1: (laughs) as you know robert i've been involved in small part with some of these committees and yeah i always it's not unusual for me to head out of one of these committee meetings with a a slight or or more than slight headache after trying to juggle all the the personalities and the and the um and the um different agendas around the room um but it's it's um yeah, sometimes it's a good day and sometimes it's a bad day with those meetings. It's a bit like a good day and a bad day at the clinic, isn't it?
2: Oh, yeah, man. well, the the thing with being president of the AVA, people say, what's your agenda? And I say, I don't have an agenda. Oh, what? You don't have an agenda and you president of the AVA, I said, no, um, I'm chair of the board and I'm here to facilitate sort of a decision process um, yes. with my board. And I'm here to work on a you know, strategic plan of the organisation and then we get uh, that to be implemented by management and for the benefit of our members. And that's that's the role of a good chair is not to have an agenda but to facilitate governance, basically. Yes, good governance.
1: Mark, any... Any final questions for Robert before we get out of here for this week?
0: Well, honestly, I could um, keep asking him questions for for um, for weeks and weeks. But I think um, what we need to do, Brendan, is re- revisit. There's some specific things that we should come back to, and and uh, um, now that we're back in the. The groove of um, interviewing some people, um, we'll get Robert back in at another time and and hit him up for some more specific details. But it's been a genuine pleasure talking to him today, and and as it is every time um, I manage to, uh, when he manages to catch me on the phone, um, it's always a, a, um, a raises the spirit of the day for me. So it's uh, um, I look forward to doing it again shortly.
1: Thank you, Robert, for spending a little bit of time
2: with us in the podcast and we will chat to you again soon thank you mark thank you brendan it's been an absolute delight um i think i'll go mowing now
1: (laughs) now my question regarding mowing robert (laughs) um i know we spoke about this before we went on air it's it's a crucial one and i've quizzed mark on it before um when you're mowing the lawn and i appreciate do you have a right on mower on your yeah. little farmlet yep. um, yeah they, well it's a little bit different than i have i don't have quite that amount of acreage robert but the question i always have for people when they're doing the moan how do you do the moan do you do it in a circular pattern and slowly wind in or do you do, do it in a sort of up and down and hatch sort of pattern and if you do Go circular or the other way? Do you go clockwise or anti-clockwise?
2: Uh, well, if I do circular, I go anti-clockwise because the um, the outlet for you know the the um, grass coming out from underneath the the machine is on the right,
0: so it's but, but only in the southern along. hemisphere.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but if I was in the northern hemisphere, yeah, I'd do it the other way around. <laughs> and as for do I go around the circle? Not a lot. I mainly go up and down because. Um, I have to then use get a sweeper on the back of the mower and pick it up, so it's a lot easier if it's done in nice long rows. Um, yeah, it's very organised, and then I get big <laughs> piles of grass, and then I feed them to the sheep, and they love it.
1: Yeah. And I think that's part of the act of mowing, isn't it? That's sort of you get in that zen of um, you know getting the the pattern correct, and you just yeah, I just I just, I just my mind wanders when I'm mowing the lawn and um yeah it's
2: um you finish mowing the lawn and you think good job Brendan Yeah it's like doing surgery and just putting the last skin suture in and you think (laughs) gee I can't remember what I what I did for the last forty minutes but yeah it was good. Um and look at that what a fine job I did. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you very
1: much, Robert, and we hope to get you on again another day. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Mark. Well, Mark, there you go. That was fun—is my way to describe it in one word. Mark, it's always great to catch up with Robert. He's a very good friend of both of us, and hopefully, our listeners enjoyed that as well. Any final comments, Mark?
0: Oh, he's a wonderful person, and um, not just a great friend, but a, a mentor and a leader in the profession. And, and just having the chance to um, have it share a yarn with him um, with all our listeners—been a special afternoon.
1: Absolutely, and we do have
0: a few other interviews
1: on the books. Uh, and once we get off our backsides and hassle the people to to um, the review uh, recordings, um, we'll have them as well. And we always find that these sorts of interviews are probably our most highly played <laughs> podcasts, Mark. Um, so if anybody has the thoughts of any exotic pet vet or anybody you think we should interview uh, drop us a line vet at gmail.com and we'll we'll hopefully consider getting them on as well apart from that it's huru from the gurus we'll talk to you all next week
0: thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus